Welcome to Frankly Speaking on the TurfNet Radio Network. Here is your host, Dr. Frank Rossi. Welcome to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi from Cornell University, and I'm joined today by a really, I don't know any other way to say it, but really a legend, someone that was there uh, really at the beginning of what I would call the modern turf grass science era, uh, both in his academic career uh, in the 1960s at Rutgers University through Michigan State, uh, and as many faculty positions that he held, and even an industry position positions that he's held. Um, I'm joined today by Professor Emeritus Al Turgeon at Penn State University, and Al's taking time out of his very busy schedule in retirement, it sounds like, Al, uh, to join me. Uh, let's uh, get everybody up to date with how you're doing, how you're feeling, and uh, what's going on. What are your days filled like these days, Al, uh, as an emeritus professor? Uh, and prior to our conversation, you were saying you were pretty busy. So just uh, give me a rundown of what day in the life of Al Turgeon uh, is like these days. <laughs> Well, it's a lot slower paced than it used to be, I can tell you that. But I usually start out going to the Y and do water aerobics, trying to make my health a priority as I've had to deal with arthritis and a few other problems. And um, and then around the house with the wife, uh, doing pretty much what she tells me. <laughs> and then um, and I try to do a little writing. I've I've got an education book that I've been thinking about for years and I'm starting to work on, and I also... Uh, have tried my hand at some fiction writing, um, sort of following up on what my older daughter does. She's she's a writer who's published five novels, and she's helping me a little bit. So I managed to stay pretty busy. Well, as long as I've known you, Al, I've always sort of admired your energy, uh, and, I'm, and I'm almost glad to hear you slowing down a little bit. I didn't think it was sustainable. Anybody could keep the energy level uh, you had for so many years. Um, so I'm really glad to hear that you're also uh, keeping your mind really busy by writing fiction. That will do it to you. Uh, that's not something we get trained to do. So it's something you obviously must be exerting a little bit of energy to, to learn to do. Well, it's a humbling experience because <laughs> I'm, a, I'm basically a descriptive writer right? And uh, from my books and things. But in fiction, you've got to learn how to bring the subject to life and write scenes. And I'm finding that a bit of a challenge. My daughter is helping me, but I'm, I'm afraid I'm, I'm not better than a C student on that so far. Okay. Well, talking about being a C student now, so I'm looking at your uh, faculty page here at, at, Penn, at your Penn State page, and it says that you got your bachelor's degree in 1965. I know, because uh, we're from the same area, that you had been working on golf courses, I would assume, in the New York metropolitan area, at least had some exposure with your family uh, in the golf business. Why don't you talk about uh, what it was like uh, back in the 60s, thinking about getting into turf and how that happened for you? Well, that actually happened in the late 50s. Um, my father had a restaurant, and I worked there every day after school. And when I was 14 years old, he sold it. And that's when my uncle, whose name was Bruno Vadella, who was at that time assistant at Metropolis Country Club, said, come work with us on the golf course. So that summer, after my first year of high school, I worked at Metropolis, a full-time job. Uh, I actually worked more than the 40 hours a week I was allowed by law, and they simply uh, um, paid me for additional weeks after the school year began in the fall. 
and I worked there all through uh, my high school and college years with the intent of eventually becoming a golf course superintendent. Right. So, so very, very similar to my own uh, career, uh, starting out on golf courses and aspired to be a golf course superintendent. When did you realize that wasn't going to be the fit for you? Well, it, it, it was the intent all along, but I, I uh, took ROTC in college and I got a commission as a second lieutenant in the Army. Uh, but in 1965, the world was changing very rapidly, and the Vietnam War all of a sudden became a major uh, factor in uh, in my life and in the lives of many other young men at that time. Um, I opted to go to flight school after infantry training to learn how to be a helicopter pilot, and I went to Vietnam flying helicopters. And when I came back, I still had a year to go in my three-year active duty tour, and I uh, reported to my last duty station and told them, uh, they had me slated to be a flight instructor. And I said, I, I really don't want to fly anymore, and I'd much prefer uh, a non-flying job if that's possible, maybe like teaching class or something like that. Not that I wanted to be a teacher. I just I just had enough flying to last me for the rest of my life. <laughs> and crashing, and, uh, and crashing. Yeah, and crashing. And they uh, they said, well, there's a slot for a meteorology instructor. And I said, well, I had a course in meteorology at Rutgers, plus I'd been through the training. So, yeah, that would uh, that would be quite suitable. And the guy says, and you've got a lot of teaching experience, right? And I lied to him. I said, yes. <laughs> the only thing I really ever taught was people how to, was to teach people how to mow greens <laughs> and fairways and stuff on a golf course, right. which I guess counted as teaching I experience. think it does. So anyway, yes, it does. I went off. I went through four weeks of instruction on how to teach, and then I uh, had to actually sit in on the course and began teaching and fell in love with it. And just at that point, I get a letter from my old advisor, Ralph Engel at Rutgers, telling me about an assistantship at Michigan State. And so I communicated with the professor at Michigan State, and one thing led to another. I wound up taking a calculus course at night because I'd never had calc. I got out six weeks early to start graduate study that fall and uh, got there and hit the ground running and finished a master's and Ph.D. in three years. Whoa. And then went on to the University of Illinois in 1971, and that began a 40-year, pretty much academic career, save for that two and a half years in industry. Right. So let's go back to uh, that move to, to graduate school and the assistantship. So you, you really, you weren't trained, as I would have thought, maybe on a GI Bill. You, 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 it wasn't uh, the GI Bill that you would have came back from Vietnam and got trained on. It was an assistantship that you went off to Michigan State for. Well, actually, it was both. Uh, when I was a graduate student, I got a, an assistantship. I was a captain in the Army Reserves for two years. Uh, I did have the GI Bill benefits, and my wife was working. Uh, we, we lived better then than we did for many years afterwards. <laughs> and uh, and but, but it was a very busy time. Right. I was in a rush to do everything as quickly as I could. I guess I was making up for lost time in the Army. <laughs> so when you went to Michigan State, was it with Don Penner that you started with in herbicide stuff? No, the my my professor was was Bill Meggett, who was a weed control guy, and they got some state money to do uh, weed control in turf, principally for sod production, and so that was the assistantship he recruited me for. Well, I naturally gravitated uh, over and worked with the turf guys under Beard, 
So Beard wasn't my major professor, but he was essentially a secondary advisor because I associated more with them than I did with the weed control guys working in crops. As I pursued my doctoral work, I had to do a fair amount of laboratory work, and that's where Don Penner came in. He really guided my laboratory work on herbicide action and metabolism and uh, and fate. So your earliest work, so you would almost say in modern terms that you were trained almost as a weed scientist. Would you say you were trained as a weed oh, scientist? Yeah. yeah. I considered myself a weed scientist, and in fact, for the first few years uh, after I graduated, I went to the weed science meetings. It was only a few years later that I switched over and began going to the agronomy meetings. My first job was really, I had extension responsibility, teaching and research, and uh, and I couldn't pursue weed control with the intensity I, I wanted to, didn't have a lab initially, and so I did more field ecology work. And and it became obvious to me that it was a, a, a better fit over in agronomy than it was in weed science, and I made that shift okay. about 1974. Okay, so w- what's it like uh, at Michigan State when you're there in the late 60s, early 70s? Beard's there, Reeky's there, Vargas must have been a kid if he was there. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm thinking about, uh, Bob Sherman might've been there at the time. Right, I mean, right. I'm it rattling was. off names that I would put on the Mount Rushmore with you of, <laughs> of turf. And so tell me what it's like with all of you guys there really at, you know, Musser and a bunch of other guys, certainly Doc Watson had been at it for a little bit, but really I would say, and maybe it's cause I'm biased cause I spent time there and have had many chats with uh, Paul Ricci about these topics. And of course, Joe about these topics. What was right. it like then to, to be there at the time when, you know, Beard was probably working on science and culture at the time, Tell us, try, try to describe what that feeling was like about work, working in an area that almost didn't exist. Yeah, yeah, uh, it was a, it was an incredible time. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. Um, um, despite the fact that I, I worked very hard, um, it was a very enjoyable time. Um, when I got there, uh, Dave Martin and John Kaufman were there. Uh, Bob Sherman came on a couple months later, I think. Uh, Joe Vargas came on as a brand new assistant professor the first year I was there. Um, uh, let's see, I'm trying to remember some of the other names, but anyway, we, we had a, a big group with Beard and I sort of, I was sort of the, 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 the nephew of that group. I, I associated with him because I wanted to get close to turf, uh, but be the weed, uh, guy in, in working in turf. I had a relationship with Meggett, but it, it, it became a more distant relationship because he realized that my preference was turf. And so I didn't, I didn't get so much involved with his group. He was running about six grad students but they all worked in uh, weed control and field crops and I was on the turf side but it was an exciting time and the the faculty that that would be Beard, Riki, uh, Vargas the new guy, Ken Payne uh, everybody got along well and we would we would go off and do field days up in Traverse City and spend the night and have wonderful discussions after dinner and we got along in a very collegial way and and it was really a a wonderful experience that convinced me that I really wanted an academic career after I finished. So so in some ways Al to listen to you um when I think of the backgrounds that 
all the other people came from. And I'm not as familiar with some of the backgrounds of, of John Kaufman or, or Dave Martin or, or even uh, Bob Sherman prior to coming to graduate school. But you had uh, an initial interest in turf that you were able to sort of explore using those other sciences. Where did, when you looked around, did everybody else have some background in turf or had worked on golf courses or were you sort of an outlier from that perspective? Of course, now, you know, a lot of kids come to school with some, a lot of turf background. Were you sort of an outlier at the time having had worked in the industry? Yeah, I probably had more background in turf than the other guys did. I know that, uh, uh, Dave Martin and, and John Kaufman, they, they were uh, more. They were uh, Mormons, and no, they weren't Mormons. Excuse me, they were uh, Mennonites, and uh, and they went to uh, to Michigan State initially as technicians under Beard uh, because they were conscientious objectors, and so that was their initial uh, uh, orientation to turf. Uh, some of the people were worried that 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 I, as a veteran, would be officed with these uh, two conscientious objectors, but it really wasn't a problem at all. We all, we all got along very well. Um, and, um, um, Bob Sherman, I'm not sure what turf background he had. I think he had some maybe on a golf course, but he joined us a little later. Um, but, um, but and then he went off to Scott's, right? He went off to Scott's from there. Sherman went to Scott's. He was with him for a couple of years and then he, uh, went to the, University of Nebraska, and had a good academic career there. Um, Kaufman, I think, uh, went to was at Cornell, and then Michigan. Then he went to Monsanto, and spent his career there. Um, Dave Martin was at Ohio State for a while, and, uh, and then he went with uh, True, no, with uh, Chemlon, and then he left, and uh, and he uh, became a missionary in uh, South America. That's right. So everybody had a different route. Yeah. So so listen. So you leave Michigan State uh, in seventy one, seventy two, three, seventy one. Okay. So you go to Illinois. Um, had there been a turf program there, and how many turf programs really existed? I mean, I know from my time in Wisconsin, Bob Newman was doing turf, but he was probably doing tobacco way more than turf there. How <laughs> yeah, many? Right. How many sort of turf people would you, how many turf programs were there back then? Were there many even yeah. west of where you were? Um, you know, Iowa had a struggling program. Um, uh, really, Illinois didn't have much. Jackie Butler was there, but he, he tended to stay in central and southern Illinois, never really ventured into the Chicago area. And uh, the dominant program then was uh, was at Purdue, uh, and then you had the the evolving newer program at Michigan State. Those are the two biggies, and then Ohio State was bigger further east. But in my area, we were we were sort of odd man out, and uh, most of the Chicago people were most of the golf courses where they would go to the Midwest Conference at Purdue. And so it was my challenge early on is to win those Chicago people to come down to Champaign. And so I developed uh, not only plots there uh, and uh, and irrigated plots. Uh, Jackie Butler had uh, portable aluminum pipe, 
and uh, so it was hard to maintain much of a turf program with that. So we we got money, we installed irrigation, we uh, built a new building, we got equipment. Uh, people were very generous in helping us to get started, and uh, gradually we we began to develop a following as we had a very active field day every year and a very active turf conference every year, largely mimicking the kinds of things that I learned at Michigan State. Right. Right. And so so uh, Jackie Butler left uh, Illinois and then went out to uh, Colorado. Yes, he left in June of 71. And then I came in September of 71 and um, and heard a lot of Jackie Butler's stories, got to know him. uh, Well, years afterwards, he invited me to come speak at his conference and and really enjoyed Jackie a lot. He was an incredibly uh, funny person and a and an intriguing person, but he, he died early. He died about age sixty. Yeah, it was. It, we lost him very early, and I have. Yeah. I never got a chance to meet him, but had many conversations with uh, uh, Dave Minner, who I know was uh, oh, yeah, one sure. of his star students uh, along the way. And listen, Al, right. before we go to our first uh, message from our sponsors, I want to get you from Illinois to Texas A and M. So you're running a turf program in Illinois. Mm-hmm. Why on earth would you leave to go to be a director <laughs> of a research station that, at least on its face, didn't look like it was a turf position, but I'm sure it was a turf position. Talk a little bit about, before we go to break, about the move to Texas. Okay. It was, uh, it was in 1979. I was working on my book. I worked on it feverishly all year. And it was during that year, around the middle of the year, sometime in the summer, Jim Beard gave me a call. He had since moved to Texas A&M in 1975 and uh, called me and he says, we have a, a directorship of the Dallas Research and Extension Center open. And he says, I know you had talked years ago about eventually becoming a department head. Do you think you might be interested? And so I said, I might. And uh, And I thought about it and I remember I did speak with my my old advisor, uh, Bill Meggett, at the agronomy meetings at at uh, Colorado State that August about it, and I said, you know, I, I'm kind of interesting, but it's not really a good time to go. I have four grad students, a very active program, and and I remember Bill said it's never a convenient time to go. You have to make a decision and 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 follow your heart. And so I eventually went, and and the reason I was so intrigued with it, the Dallas Center was unique. It was in the the North uh, Texas Blacklands. It was initially an agricultural station, but it took on more and more of an urban um, perspective in terms of ornamental work, and they had authorization to hire a turf grass breeder. And so they thought it would be good to have a person with an urban ag background to uh, to manage that program and and that's why I was a featured candidate and and went down there on January first of nineteen eighty. So before we go to our message from our sponsors, Al, I can blame you for hiring Milt Engelke down there. Yes, I hired him in uh, June of nineteen eighty. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Okay, I'm here with Al Turgeon, professor emeritus, Penn State University. Uh, this is frankly speaking. I'm Frank Rossi. We'll be right back. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. 
Best of all, an independent dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest dryject service center. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi here from Cornell University, the hills of central New York. I'm joined by my old friend, Al Turgeon, Professor Emeritus at Penn State University from the hills of Happy Valley in, in western Pennsylvania, Al, these days. And when we left off, we were talking about your time in Texas. So now you're back with Professor Beard um, at the experiment station uh, in Dallas. Uh, you had just, as we... Uh, uh, confirmed, uh, been involved in the hiring of a now retired, uh, I, I don't know if he's Professor Emeritus, but certainly Professor Ingelke in the breeding program. So what's it like down there? It's not like anybody doesn't know the size of the personalities of Milt and, and especially <laughs> Professor Beard. Um, and, and you, like me, don't shy away from uh, sort of instigating certain things. Uh, what was that like at A&M? How long were you there? Uh, I spent a total of three and a half years there and uh, intended to stay a little bit longer, but then another opportunity came up and I and I took advantage of it for a variety of reasons. But it, it was an exciting time. It was my first introduction to an academic administration. Um, we had uh, uh, an evolving program at Texas um, at the uh, Dallas uh, Center. Uh, Jim Beard was not at the Dallas Center. He was at the main campus at College Station. Uh, and had just, when I arrived, he had ascended to the role of interim head of the agronomy department. And so the the hiring of Milt Engelke, that was the one position that was available when I got there, was sort of a joint thing because Milt would be a member of agronomy, as I was, but would, all, would, would be stationed at the uh, Dallas Center. And so we collaborated in, in the search process and, and in bringing Milt on board. And he came in uh, June, I think it was, of 1980, hit the ground running, very aggressive person, um, and uh, worked very hard to get a program up and running. Um, he and Beard had some, some clashes. Uh, uh, both of them were uh, you know strong type A personalities. Um, I tried to mitigate and get them to, to, uh, to work together. Particularly oh, yeah, because oh, yeah, uh, you're a type B. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but Jim stepped down from that uh, role as department head. He was only in it for six months uh-huh. until he hired a permanent one. And the two had some clashes, and we tried to uh, mitigate that. But, uh, you know, Jim, uh, in his defense, worked for many, many years uh, trying to develop physiological uh, indices or parameters that a breeder could use in selecting uh, environmentally adapted turf grasses. And and this was his first opportunity to really work with a breeder and, and realize that dream. And Milt, uh, you know, had his own ideas of, of what should be done. And so it was inevitable that they would clash. Uh, I don't think they ever really made up uh, over the years, uh, but uh, that's unfortunate because those two guys really emerged as giants in their respective areas and could have been a wonderful team had they been able to 
to get along a little better, but that's the way things are. Yeah, and it's not uncommon that that those happen. Uh, breeders and physiologists, breeders of any kind, oftentimes, you know, I would say what makes them really good is their their single mindedness in some ways, and and that also would make it difficult for them to deal with. But I want to talk about something you mentioned earlier that I hadn't really thought about much before. That's really emerging as quite a big deal uh, as a as a part of turf, and that is its role in urban environments. Al, just as we let's take a little right turn here and talk about the world today. Uh, everywhere you look, and especially after the mess in California with the water, uh, you know, the, the rush to just rip grass out, what do we got it for? Why are we doing this? It doesn't serve a purpose. Um, you know, you were in the thick of this conversation in the 70s and 80s. Tell me what it was like using the word urban in Texas back then when I didn't really have the, I mean, we didn't have, or we weren't certainly using words like sustainability or ecosystem services, like words we use now. What was it like when you were talking about turf in an urban environment? Well, it was, it was a time of great change because agriculture had been viewed a certain way. And then all of a sudden, people began talking about agriculture in the urban environment. And what they were specifically referring to was was home lawns, uh, gardens, uh, uh, ornamental arrays, uh, that sort of thing, parks. And, uh, and those were areas that... Um, uh, enhanced uh, the quality of people's lives, but they also consumed resources. And one of the most important resources uh, that they consumed was water. And as water became, a, you know, a commodity of increasing concern, then the question arose: you know, how much water can you really allocate to people's lawns or to golf courses or or parks or what have you? And and so one of the pushes at that time, and a, and a key backer of this was the USGA, the United States Golf Association, particularly its green section people, to see if they could come up with more. Um, resource conserving uh, turf grasses, more uh, uh, drought tolerant turf grasses that wouldn't require as much water, uh, whether it's home lawns or golf turf or what have you. And that was really one of the the the, the things that Beard was very much interested in was water conservation, and wanted to work with Engelke on to uh, to uh, make some strides in that area. And in, and in fact, Engelke did. A shift more and more over to um, buffalo grass and to zoysia grasses because these were more water-conserving grasses for whether it was a home lawn or for or other commercial turfs. Uh, so, so they were all part of that movement at the time, and the USGA set up a research fund to fund uh, work that was directed at water conservation. So it was an exciting time. So, so how would you grade, uh, looking back now, really at the beginning of sort of the challenges that, as a scientific discipline, we began to confront uh, the issue of water? Uh, probably in the turf world, you know, that Texas area, the dry area down there, the breeder that you brought on, obviously many people were working on water. How would you grade where we are today as a science in how effective we've been in improving our, our use of water and water tolerant grasses? My The reason I'm asking that question is I'm sort of familiar with what the USGA has invested in over the years, and yet I would I guess I would ask you to comment on this, uh, my comment here, 
do you think we've been successful? Would you give us a passing grade as an industry uh, about the way we are about water now? Well, you got to remember, at the time, there was a lot of emphasis on breeding, and as a as a as a, a more contemporary dimension of that, biotechnology. Um, and so it was natural for people to think that the solution to water conservation would be in developing more water conserving grasses. Um, I think as as you look over the years and, and where we've come with that, uh, I don't think that was the 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 total answer to the problem. In fact, maybe less of an answer than we initially thought. But it was it was a worthwhile thing to explore. I think where the real con- water conservation has come from is in one designing better irrigation systems. Mm-hmm. When I grew up on a golf course in Metropolis, we had a <laughs> center line irrigation system and the Quick fairways. Couplers. Yeah, quick couplers, and and I've done the night watering bit, and uh, you know you you'd be running around changing those big sprinklers from one location to the other. You'd get there, and the ground would be saturated with standing water. You'd run down to try to find the next outlet in the in the dark, and then keep moving all night. And and of course to provide adequate water along the sides of the fairway, you inevitably had to overwater the center of the fairways. And so you had inefficient use of water and uh, a lot of runoff and waste. Well, since that time, we've uh, developed these much more efficient uh, overlapping uh, uh, irrigation system designs that um, that come close to uniformity of uh, distribution of water. Uh, we've, we've come up with uh, nozzle systems that are um, adequate in terms of the distribution. Um, we've gotten away from the earlier prohibition of nighttime irrigation, largely because of operational needs, but, but found out it wasn't as bad a thing as people thought. And you could get less evaporative uh, water loss during irrigation at night. And so better systems, uh, nighttime irrigation, and better management of those systems, including multiple cycling, instead of putting a whole lot of water on, maybe at a rate in excess of the infiltration capacity, you could put it on in spurts and, in effect, reduce the precip rate and thus get better uh, penetration of water into the turf. I think it's those kinds of practices uh, along with other dimensions of the cultural program, including cultivation methods, that have resulted in, in considerable gains in water use efficiency. And right. breeding has become a relatively small part of that. Right, right. You're exactly right. Of course, cultivation and the ability uh, to increase infiltration and usefulness of that water was something we didn't necessarily have until, uh, you know, Riki and Waddington and Watson were playing around with that. Uh, particular thing. I'm wondering your opinion about soil moisture sensors. I've been on a big kick lately. We're doing a, a bunch of work with these wireless sensors that Toro's come out with and working with their, uh, their programming system now to turn the keys of the irrigation system over to the sensors in these large expanses of soil-based fairways. Now that we can map these soils GPS-wise, put the sensors where we want them. I'm wondering your opinion on, on how you think uh, soil moisture sensing, when it, when it comes into full acceptance, uh, will, will impact uh, our use of water. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, in, in fairness to the old-timers, some guys were really good at this without all that stuff. 
just by by observing, by uh, probing, you know, with a soil probe or whatever, they could pretty much uh, and and getting to know. The, their particular landscape and, and its characteristics uh, were pretty good already. Um, I think the the introduction of uh, of uh, new sensing systems uh, and the ability to tie those into the operation of the irrigation system makes it um, a little more foolproof as that technology evolves. And eventually, I think we'll we'll begin to see even greater gains than we had uh, historically. Um, water management in the past was always an art. I can remember the uh, very first week on the golf course, they sent me out to hand water a green. That was in the day you hand watered greens with a hose and nozzle. And uh, and the superintendent, Mr. Um, um, Joe... Uh, Joe uh, oh, Valentine? Gosh. No, no, no. This was at Metropolis. I'll think oh. of it in a minute. Um, he, um, he, Flynn, Mr. Joe Flynn. Ah, right. He, he was a superintendent. My uncle was, uh, assistant. He came out and uh, there were puddles all over the place and he wasn't very happy. And he, he showed me how to water a green. And, uh, next week they sent me out again and, uh, and I tried to follow his instructions and Mr. Flynn gets out and says, how's it going, Al? And I said, good. See, no puddles. And he walks on the green and he goes, squish, squish. And he says, this is better, but you're not there yet. He says, I want to be able to walk this green after you've finished watering it and feel it firm with no water coming up around my shoes. So here I am, 14 years old, trying to figure out how the hell to do that. And the only thing I could come up with is I had to give it a little drink and move and be very aggressive in the pattern of movement around that green. And uh, the next time he came out, he uh, got out of the Jeep, he walked the green, he nodded, and he left. And I never saw him again. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I, you know, I, I often think sometimes, and, and you will hear some old-timers say this, that, that we were better at watering years ago because it was such a pain in the ass to do. We didn't even want to em- embark upon it. So now it's so easy with just pushing a button and, you know, running heads that that's that's part of what's made it easier. Now I want to uh, wrap up this segment in the next couple of minutes, Al, with with your move from from out of academics into uh, the the into private industry as a uh, uh, an administrator, as a as a director or technical director in True Green. It wasn't True Green Chemlon then; it was just True Green, right, Al? That's right. Yeah, at that time it was a twenty-one million dollar company very rapidly growing and they decided that to to achieve their growth goals they needed to have a technical support system in place that would enable them to get their people up to speed and perform in in an acceptable way and so they approached me um, when I was uh, there in Texas and initially I said no I don't think I'm interested I can give you some recommendations but but I'd be happy to come talk to you about it and so I did go, and they, they took me around uh, on the corporate plane, and we visited different sites. And, and I came back, and I got to thinking about it. And uh, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, this sounds like something that uh, might be a good thing at this stage of my career. And uh, so the more I thought about it, the more I thought, maybe it's worth a shot. And so I decided to go, and uh, and it was a, it was a two-and-a-half-year experience. I told myself I'd give it two years and then I'd evaluate and decide to stay or go back to the academic world. 
Was it a little uh, bit scary? Was it a little bit scary at that time? I mean, I know you became, you know, you began to sort of venture into administration with your move to Texas. Now you're at True Green. That's even more administration you'd imagine in a business world. Was there some trepidation and that's why you set the two-year mark so you didn't stay out too long? Well, you're, you're talking to an old helicopter pilot, so <laughs> intrepidation is is uh, something I've lived with for a long time. Uh, no, it was it was an exciting adventure, and knowing that I that I had academic administrative background, I knew if I wanted to, I could get back into the academic world, either as a department head or an associate dean or something like that. So it was worth a try. The other factor was we were living in Texas, and my wife and my two daughters were severely um, allergic to the dust and the dander in the air there. And uh, one daughter was, was so bad that the, the allergist said, you really should move up north or live along a coast to get out of this environment. So there was another factor that kind of made it you know, urgent to, to make a move. Right. And so, 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 so you're at that. True Green, right? You're at True Green. You're it's a startup company, I guess, even at twenty one million dollars, maybe was was pretty expansive. They're asking you to build their technical services that you eventually what handed to Herdo or was he doing Chemlon then? Uh, no, what what happened was uh, uh, I it handed it initially to a guy I hired and trained. Uh, who uh, who stayed in that role for a while and then was hired away by Scotts. Um, no, initially I was uh, vice president of research and technical services, and the, the th- key thing was to set up a uh, it's sort of like a extension agents uh, set up a technical service group that could monitor the branches and make sure that they were doing things right, and then we developed research plots so we could investigate some of the issues, and then. Because of how that was developing, they asked me to take on equipment development, which which was building the tankers and service units, and uh, and I took that over. We renamed it Engineering Services. We outsourced the construction uh, of the uh, of the tankers, and we even outsourced the maintenance, uh, copying uh, how UPS maintained their fleet. And in house, we did mostly research and development. And then they asked me to take on. Uh, um, invent, uh, 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 purchasing and distribution because most of what we purchased was fleet and chemicals. And then they asked me to take on uh, uh, education and training, and we simply incorporated that into what we were already doing. And then finally, they asked me to take on corporate safety. So I actually evolved as a, as a senior vice president for support services. So it was it was an exciting time yeah. with with new challenges every step of the way. Well, it, it's I'm Alice. Before we go to our next break, and and when we come back, we'll we'll talk about your move back to Penn State. But just in listening to the thirty minutes we've been yakking already, um, it seems like every place you've gone at the time you were there was at a time when this industry was in some form of exponential growth, whether it was golf uh, and the USGA investing, whether it was science and that was expanding. Now you're in the lawn care business and that's expanding. So I, I you know, I don't want to call you the Forrest Gump of, of turf because, uh, you know, in so many ways, I know that, uh, you know, I don't want that to be a negative thing, but because of, I've always been fascinated with it. It always seemed like you were there uh, when things were really getting exciting and going and talking to you. uh, It seems to validate that for me 
and it's and I guess in talking about it, do you feel that way that it was that time you were lucky to be there? Oh yeah, it was an exciting time in the turfgrass industry, and uh, and uh, I was I was happy to be in different dimensions of it at a time when things are very dynamic. Okay, Professor Emeritus Al Turgeon from Penn State University. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Golf course superintendents, now you can aerate and fill 9 inches to 11 inches deep with minimal surface disruption and cleanup. The Maximus Deep Aeration Instant Fill Service from Dryject injects 1 pound of sand per square foot, 22 tons per acre, and leaves services ready for play again in one hour. Best of all, Maximus by Dryject is only half the cost of alternative deep aeration and fill technologies. Visit MaximusAeration.com to locate your nearest Maximus by Dryject service center. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi from Cornell University here in the hills of central New York, and I'm joined by my old friend and really turfgrass legend, Professor Emeritus Al Turgeon from Penn State University. Al, and when we left, you were talking about all your, your ascension, really, to senior vice president in the True Green Corporation that then ultimately led to your movement to be uh, a full-time administrator, or I know you were still doing research because I was reading your papers when you were department head, but you go to Penn State to be a, a department head, and I don't really want to spend a lot of time talking about that. I, I want to spend time talking about how the hell you imagined what the world campus was going to be before anybody else saw it. What were the signs you began to see when you started that online learning uh, a program at Penn State? I, I guess I just want to pick your brain a little bit. What were the signs you saw that thought that would be what it has become today? Well, I've always um, loved teaching. I mean, that's what that's what got me to go to grad school and pursue an academic career. And as a as an assistant and associate professor at the University of Illinois, one of the things that I did in my teaching was I used illustrations. Uh, I would hire artists and I would have them illustrate things for me to to bring out the salient features that sometimes are obscured in an actual photograph of the thing. And so it's always been a hallmark of my teaching. And so, um, and then as an administrator, I began thinking about how, how you do a better job of preparing people to meet life's challenges in the real world, and that's what got me into case-based teaching. But what, what really stimulated my interest in online was in the early 1990s, somebody came into my office. This would happen a lot when I was department head, and they said, you want to see something really cool? And they would pull up uh, Mosaic which was an early experimental web browser. And uh, so somebody came in one day and they, and they showed me this. And I thought, that's cool. And I got to thinking about it. And what, what was fascinating is I realized I could scan these illustrations that I had accumulated over the years and put them online, add narrative text, add some navigation icons, and teach. And I could, you know, instead of traveling all over the world, I could reach all over the world using this technology. 
And I and I as the more I thought about it, the more I thought this is the future of education. It's gonna it's gonna enable us to enhance the quality of resident education and at the same time extend its reach to people all over the world. And I became really obsessed with this. At a time when I'd been a department head now for almost ten years, I was getting bored with it. I was getting bored with administration. And I realized I still had this last portion of my career, and I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to devote the, the last segment of my career to this online thing, not knowing that it, it would be very successful, but feeling that it had enormous potential. And I remember the opposition I ran into was fierce. People would say, you oh. can't teach that way. <laughs> well, I remember, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you here because I was, sitting at a, I was sitting at a crop science meeting one time. I think it was at a business meeting. You got up and started talking about what you were doing. You, you looked at everybody in the audience and said, I'm imagining a time when there won't be turf conferences we physically go to anymore. You, you said we, that we would be staying at our home watching our turf conferences. And I got to tell you, because at that time, turf conferences were just starting to boom. I mean, trade shows and conferences, you know, not back in the old days with, you know, you guys going up to Traverse City or O.J. Knorr and Charlie Wilson taking the train across the country. I mean, this was, it was becoming a major part of our industry. You stand up there and say, well, we're not going to be doing this much longer. And I'm thinking, what the hell is he talking about? And yet, uh, I, so I know you must have experienced some significant resistance uh, as a result of that, but it didn't seem to deter you. How did, did, it, did it ultimately become what it was because you were able to convince people at Penn State that they should invest in it? Um, that was tough. I was able to get a little bit of money here and there uh, <laughs> because um, there was interest at Penn State in uh, in this area, and and in fact, there was a committee formed that uh, produced a, a report that said this has got real potential, and so it was the president of that time who said, "I'm going to form a, uh, a study team to really explore the feasibility of it," and he was the one who came up with the name World Campus um, instead of distance education, and I was asked to be on that study team. I was one of two professors. All the other people were administrators because by then I had stepped down and was working in this area. And so we actually brought this whole world campus thing to life. And the very first course taught on it was my introductory turf grass course. I was the only one actually ready to go with an actual course. And then I, I figured out how to teach my case studies course, and I started teaching that as well. And we began formally, informally in 1997 and formally in 1998. But even then, I mean, I would present papers on uh, what we were doing, how we were doing it, and people would just shake their heads saying, you know, that's not a fit way to go to college, or, or that's not going to fly, or you can't teach that way. Most of my professional colleagues in the, in the university didn't believe in it and didn't think it was feasible. But gradually, uh, we, we began to uh, develop some credibility, particularly when we started teaching. And uh, all of a sudden, the numbers registering in the courses were exploding. And we discovered a vast underserved audience out there uh, who wanted uh, to learn. And particularly, we got a lot of pressure after a while to come up with online degree programs. And so we did an experimental one in the early, I think, 2003 or four. We figured out how to how to help a guy get a bachelor of science degree in turf grass science with some creative substitutions, taking advantage of the courses that were there. And once that 
we were able to do that. Then I had to make a formal application and get it approved. We got the bachelor's degree done. And then there was pressure to do a, an associate degree because it was a long stretch to go from a certificate to a bachelor's degree. So it was sort of a milestone in between. And the last thing, go ahead. Well, the last thing was the master's degree, and that was my dream. And initially, I proposed that to GCSAA, and they said, no, there's no interest in that. And uh, and I had a hell of a time getting that getting that approved internally because they said without GCSA support, it wouldn't work. Well, eventually, I got it after working at it for years, got it up and running, and immediately we had 50 students. And and after all, GCSA. Yeah, so obviously there was a there was a demand there that you saw. So I, I want to ask you now, because you mentioned your case-based stuff, and I got to tell you, uh, when you started talking about those things years ago and you, you put that Turfgrass Problem Solver book together with Joe, um, I immediately, the little bit of turf I still teach here at Cornell with mostly the landscape architects and, and students with general interest, we don't have, you know, certainly the, a traditional turf program here at, at Cornell. I've really felt that your your approach to case-based learning is really the way we should be teaching even from the minute they take their first introductory class. I, I've sort of taken some of the case approaches you've done and used it as a way to even teach ID or use it as a way to teach soils. I guess if I asked you as we start to wrap up our conversation, if you had to, like I asked you, grade how we did on water, how are we doing educating the next generation of, of turf grass professionals because I'm a, a little bit concerned that we're still teaching them in, in many ways the sort of traditional approaches that we've always taught them. And I'm wondering what your take on that is uh, with the progressive approach you've always taken. Do you think as an industry we've educated as well or as still as we could uh, trying different things? Or do you think we're still sort of doing it the same way? Um, both. Um, we're still doing a lot of things the same old way because most of us teach the way we were taught. And when you're busy doing so many other things as turf professors are, you're, you're doing research and you're trying to get grant money and you're trying to respond to people's needs and you're traveling the world and you're doing all these things and building and managing facilities. There's little time available to do innovative uh, approaches to teaching. I was in a unique position because I was a former department head in a large program with a lot of colleagues who did all the other things, and I was free to really focus on this. And and the the way I the, the reason I embraced case based approach to teaching was I remember a conversation I had when I was a graduate student with a young golf superintendent. I asked him, "How well did your did your education prepare you for the challenges you face today as a superintendent? And he said, about 10%. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, 10% of what I do is turf. The rest of it's people and budgets and relationships and, and uh, management and so on. And so for many years, I thought, how, how, do we, how do we transform education so that it actually prepares people to meet the challenges they face in the real world? And as an administrator, I began to explore more and more systems and cases. And that's what really got me involved in that. And I started teaching a case studies course while I was still a department head. And uh, initially, the students didn't like it. They, they thought, this guy's making us work. We got this thing mastered, you know, how to, how to sit there, take notes, take an exam, and get through this stuff. And he's making us work. Right, right. But right. inevitably, by right. the end of the course, they all loved it because... 
what I was teaching them was the things they needed to know to go out and be effective in the field. And so I, I strongly believe in that, and I think I think the industry has a ways to go to embrace this approach. The problem is that unless you have an extension background or an administrative background, a lot of people are afraid to to get into cases because you, you're not just operating in soil fertility or or plant nutrition or genetics or breeding or or or, or etymology. You're dealing with everything, and unless you're comfortable right. working across right. the board, it's a bit of a challenge. Well, and I would add further, Al, you know, when, when you think about the evolution of your career, even my career, which started in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, you know, just having information was gold back then. If you could have a book, I remember sitting in, 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 the, in the golf shop in, in Leewood Golf Club when I started working in a maintenance shop and a magazine would come that had turf in it. I would just, I would devour it because it was the only access to information you really had. So I'm wondering as we wrap up here, it isn't that issue anymore. In fact, it's almost the opposite. Wouldn't you say we have access to so much information? It's a matter of what you do with it now. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are for the future where really getting the information isn't the issue. It's synthesizing it, integrating it, and then putting it all together to solve a problem. It seems to me, once again, Professor Turgeon, <laughs> you're ahead of the curve here because case studies yeah. is the way to teach when you're not limited with the That's information true. you but, can you know, get. This actually is going on, uh, oftentimes in an informal way rather than a formal way. Since I was a kid, when, when my Uncle Bruno would take me to golf course superintendent meetings, these guys would sit around and they would talk about problems. They would talk about, I had this uh, problem. Well, what did you do about it? Well, I tried this. It didn't work. And I tried this, and, and that seemed to work. And then somebody else would put his two cents worth in. And you had a discussion based around problems that people encountered and what kinds of successes that they were able to realize through their um, experimental uh, efforts. And that, that goes on all the time. We've just got to find a better way of mainlining that in the way we teach our undergrads and the way we conduct extension work with people in the field and so on. And if you go to the uh, the GCSAA uh, seminars, more and more you'll see people embracing that sort of participatory approach to teaching, involving the people in the audience and, and, uh, and mining the kinds of experiences they've had in addressing specific problems. right. 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 Well, it changes the role, doesn't it, Al? It changes your role from uh, what we will casually call the sage on the stage to maybe more of a facilitator role, right? I mean, to to really be an educator nowadays, I find with any students I'm working with, you you have to facilitate a, a conversation for the learning to occur again, because they can grab information from anywhere and you sort of want them to say it so it helps them you know, process it. And that requires you to shut up a little bit as a teacher, which, you know, for a guy like me, is not the easiest thing to do to, to stay quiet. But wouldn't you say that's part of the challenge we face is that educators now have to step back from that expert role of being the provider of information and, and move to the facilitator of learning? That's right. That's the key to effecting learning. And, and it's not new. It goes all the way back to Socrates. 
fact, we talk about the Socratic approach of teaching, whereas you recognize that student doesn't come in with a blank slate. He actually has some knowledge, some experience, and you can capitalize on that and, and help that person grow largely by using questions and prompts and then stimulating him to seek information on his own to, to learn how to become an independent problem solver. Well, Al, it has been an absolute joy to spend this time with you. I'm so glad you uh, took the time to do it. I really appreciate you doing it. And I got to tell you, I wish you as a, a person who has been a mentor uh, to me, even at a distance for so many years, I wish you nothing but the best of health and as much enjoyment and excitement as you can take uh, in retirement. Uh, and I hope uh, I get to see you either at meetings down the road or, or somewhere where our paths will cross. Well, thank you, Frank. I enjoyed it very much. And you Thanks have a good very day. much. Take care. Al Turgeon from Frankly Speaking here, the Professor Emeritus from Penn State University. I'm Frank Rossi on TurfNet Radio. This is Smart Talk from Leading Thinkers.